0: I believe we have 19 factors to go tonight. (laughs) But I think that if we don't get all wrapped up tonight, it's all right, the retreat continues with the second cohort of Oregonians and uh, Washingtonians. And it's all being recorded so, I think by the end of the next week, I'll get through everything. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, substance in the thirty-seven requisites. So, of course, I've given uh, two-week retreats on just, just on equanimity, the seventh factor of the seven factors of enlightenment. Just that I've done, a <laughs> two-week retreat on, so. Tonight, though, I would like to talk about the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is interesting that the Buddha separates it out, just as he does the sixth factor, the right efforts. He separates out these Four Foundations of Mindfulness, although they're contained in the Eightfold Path. He makes them a separate feature. So, he must feel that it's very important. Also, you notice that he doesn't separate out the eighth factor, the sama-samadhi, right concentration. Because I think that these two factors, right effort and right mindfulness, especially the four foundations of right mindfulness, you will find out that there's a little... that if you can put in those causes, then you are on the verge. In fact, success in putting the, those two factors together, right effort and right mindfulness, will automatically produce some degree of samadhi, right? Samadhi. And of course, they, this is touched on in other factors, like the Bojangas, the seven factors of enlightenment. This specifically samadhi is uh, mentioned in there. And of course, in the eight factor, uh, the Eightfold Path as well. But you can see that he th- regards these two as very critical. And of course, uh, mindfulness has been given a lot of focus. It's been spotlighted and a lot of retreats, but often it's not the four foundations of mindfulness. It's just mindfulness in general, which could be anything, but what you see mindfulness is very specific And it also has already been made clear what mindfulness is. actually has had previous instructions about what it's supposed to be doing in right effort. So mindfulness is not just an abstract function of the mind. This is what we call samasati, or right mindfulness. So it's not mindfulness it's a very specific kind of mindfulness which has a very specific purpose and is in a specific context and that is in the context of the Eightfold Path and that's why it is called right. So it begins of course with the body and one way you can think about Why initiate mindfulness with mindfulness of the body is that it's it's more or less the most obvious, the coarsest factor. And one, you can think about it as the gateway to the monastery or the the entrance to the monastery. Monasteries have usually nice winding paths towards them, gateways, kind of to remind the person that's entering where they are, that there's something special. Sometimes you see in the in some of the Japanese temples that they deliberately make sure that the path to the monastery is not, not exactly uh, straight. It winds a little bit. In order to um, bring your mind down into a different world, the linear practices of the world, where you're trying to get from point A to B in the quickest time is not what you want to bring into the monastery. The body is, is very obvious and the Buddha is a great teacher. He really wants to make things easy. He doesn't want to make it obscure or mystical. He's trying to make that which is very obscure and mystical into something that is approachable remember that he himself, after his own awakening, hesitated to teach. He just thought, this is how, it's very subtle, hard to explain. And of course, the story has it that a major deity encouraged him to teach that there are bright people actually who are interested in this and could be close enough to the Dhamma to understand it. So he undertook it, but he had to actually think it through himself. He had realized it, but it's a matter of formulas and teachings. And you can see it develops over time. By the time he finishes his 45 years of teaching, well, he's produced 45 volumes. Of course, there was no writing at the time, but um, this is why actually the Polycanon Canon is in 45 volumes, just one for each year. It's just an organizational structure, doesn't really correspond to any particular year or anything like this. But, so that's substantial. And you can see he experiments with various formulations, there's all kinds of ways and extractions of the Eightfold Path early teachings and later teachings, the development of the Vinaya, the the development of the Sangha, the establishment of the Bhikkhuni Order as well, having to work out all of the entanglements and difficulties with the society around him and giving the details of all these things. So what he is, is a great teacher. And of course, that is um, what he himself claims, we we talked last night about supernormal powers, all kinds of marvelous things, flying through the air cross-legged and reading people's minds and seeing into past lives and passing through mountains, walking on water, all this stuff. But he uh, plainly states what is his greatest power, and the loftiest power that a practitioner can have, whether they be monastics or a lay person, that is the capacity to teach. That's his greatest miraculous power: the ability to communicate clearly enough and encouraging enough, with enough of all of the attributes of understanding the minds of the people he's talking to. So he's very interested in talking to. You can see that he sometimes has a whole group in front of him, but he's only really addressing one person in the group. And he deliberately, and you, you see that, that that person has success in the in understanding. Sometimes he is also aware that an entire group has potential for understanding. And uh, you see that the, the sutta says that the entire group had a breakthrough as well every person in the group so he's very very interested in communicating and he is magnificent in terms of a few features one of them is similes so this is the essence I think of teaching you try to talk to the person and find what they are familiar with in their life what do they relate to what have they learned and and then you try to bring that feature into your way of speaking. So, my name is Sona, by the way. Hello. (laughs) And uh, Sona, I'm borrowing this name from the original Sona at the time of the Buddha who happened to have been a, what is called a a Veena player. It's like a sitar, looks like a sitar, but without the jangly strings. Guitar, basically. You can see it, sitar, guitar. <laughs> uh, yeah, you wonder where, does all this, where do these instruments come from? Because amazingly, you find them in India and you find them in the Middle East and you find them in uh, Bulgaria and so forth. So Sona happened to be a musician before he was a monk. And, uh, but he was out very energetic. He wore his feet out that happened to be very uh, tender to begin with but he was doing a lot of walking meditation and wore his feet out to the extent that the path, the meditation path, was covered with blood. And uh, he was thinking about maybe going back to the household life, that it's just too painful. That was his own expectation, his own thoughts about what he needed to do. He was obviously very diligent. The Buddha appeared at that time and gave him some advice that Remember when you used to play the Bina, how you tune it? And if you tune the strings too tightly, how does it sound? Doesn't sound good, O oh Lord. Too slack? Doesn't sound good, O oh Lord. So there is a right tension for the tuning of your instrument, Sona. Yes, there is, just right. And of course, Sona had spent many years getting that, that tiny little perfect tuning and just the right tension and he says now that is the way you practice and if you practice as you are now you've tuned the thing way too tight (laughs) your feet are bleeding and so forth but it doesn't mean that you're going to go off and just lie in a hammock all day there's something in the right in the middle and so this is what a simile is and of course uh, Sona did understand and uh, eventually attained barhanship. and you'll see him talking to different and giving different teachings to, to different monks one had been a the Buddha saw not only into his present life but into his past lives and he saw that he was a a gold smith had been working with jewelry and gold and loved it rather sensuous fellow as well and his teacher was actually Sariputta, the right-hand disciple of the Buddha. And he asked, what, did, uh, what was the topic that Sariputta gave you? Oh, it was uh, the 32 parts of the body and the nine stages of the decomposition of a corpse. And uh, by the way, so we're on mindfulness of the body, that is in the mindfulness of the body, 32 parts of the body, and the nine stages of the decomposition of a corpse. And of course, actually Sariputta was going by the book in some sense, although there were no books at the time. That is the sort of prescribed theme for a person who is of a sensuous nature. So oh, the first thing is to dissuade them from the beauty of the body, to show them the other side of the body, the less delightful sides of the body. And so that's, that's a standard, you'll see this in the, in the manuals of, for teachers, like the Vasudhi is a sort of a, a teacher's manual, and you'll see how, the various temperaments of students. There's people who are dominantly greedy, people who are dominantly angry, People who are dominantly deluded, people of high faith temperament, of high intelligence, uh, this kind of thing. And, and there's suggestions for appropriate topics for each type of person. But the Buddha gives an interesting thing because this is a great teacher. Although the he's what he needs, what this monk needs is he can't he can't uh, he's restless and can't just sit around with nothing to do. The Buddha says, uh, take this flower, it's actually a beautiful lotus, yellow lotus, and go and just stare at it and see if you can develop some concentration on that. Because it has this gold uh, color. By the way, so the, this, this uh, fellow had been a goldsmith in this life, but also in many, many lives before. Just always drifting back to this beautiful obsession with gold, and this is sounds like a story. But there's all kinds of people out there that would die for gold. I mean, it's just it's all over the world, and it's an obsession, isn't it? It's like it's in your plugged into your ears. It's on your fingers. It's on people hoard it. They they kill each other for it. They 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 extract it from the ocean. They they dug, dig under the earth, and they it's just a what is it with this metal, I mean, really? Apparently it just has a grip on human minds, doesn't it? So, he actually succeeds. He gets uh, the jhana with this, uh, because he he's sensual. So he, he, uses, he uses his tendency, which is very worldly, to get him into a more spiritual type of experience. And then, later on, he, He now is able to actually live the holy life in a satisfactory way because if you don't have some samadhi, you really can't live in a low sensory environment for uh, an extended periods of time. So the ideal monk's life, sitting under a tree with nothing else to do but meditate. If you can't meditate, sitting under a tree with nothing else to do and one meal a day is, eventually you're gonna run away or go crazy <laughs> so he realizes first he has to have that and then out of that eventually out of the, this nature of the samadhi by the way so the buddha says one who has good samadhi there is no need to wish may wisdom arise wisdom naturally rises and swells out of samadhi so in this case you see also that this monk had on meditating on on these flowers, these beautiful flowers, whole bundles of flowers, but he'd gone into deep samadhi and then after many hours comes out, opens his eyes, and the flowers have wilted. They're cut flowers out in the sun. And by the way, so lotuses, if you we have we have sort of northern lotus out there. Whatever they call it, what are they called? Uh, what are they called? Skunk cabbage, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. <clears throat> we, yeah, no, they, they're actually sort of northern lotuses. We pick them occasionally and put them on the altar, but they, when they're out of water, they very quickly um, start wilting. Anyway, the, it wilted, so at that moment he got an insight. He got awakening on the, what had been so beautiful, enough to allow his mind to go into this samadhi, is now not beautiful. And so Anicca, he he gets it on Anicca. And so these are the skillful, uh, the similes that the Buddha is looking through. You, you have to find knowledge that's direct, you know, for yourself. He gives a number of teachings on the body. And before he... Uh, gave out the teaching on mindfulness of breathing, which is found also in the mindfulness of the body. So one of the the lists, mindfulness of the body is 32 parts of the body, the four elements, the stages of decomposition of a corpse and mindfulness of breathing. It's all under mindfulness of the body, the first foundation of mindfulness, but The corpse meditation and 32 parts were given out first. And so it's quite early in the development. And so some monks very diligently took it up as a group, not under specific instruction from the Buddha. And the Buddha had, by that time, went on a retreat himself. He said to Ananda, his attendant, that I'm going to be in... Uh, retreat, watching my breath you know for a while, so anyway he when he came out, there were less monks there. Where are the monks, Ananda? Well, Ananda was hesitated to tell him that like a couple of dozen of them had committed, committed suicide. <laughs> he laughs, <laughs> it's a strange it's, it's very it 's a sad story, but it's it's at the same time it's it's hard not to find it strange and and funny they had they they became very depressed on just continuously reflecting on the the ugly nature of the body The, the, the the interior of the body is not a pretty sight the organs and the blood and the the bones and so forth and then of course corpse meditation as well so It had thoroughly depressed them. They didn't want to live anymore. So the Buddha, by the way, so what would the Buddha say when he came out? And uh, having, of course, taught this himself, like taught the 32 parts of the body and so forth, did he feel like, oh my Lord, what a mistake. I've made a terrible mistake. These poor monks. No. He says, those foolish monks. (laughs) <laughs> he has no sympathy for the all, <laughs> fools. <laughs> so at that time, he gives out a new variant of body meditation. He gives out breath meditation because it, you're unlikely to to get profoundly depressed over the ickiness of the body by doing breath meditation. So that is the story, and that's that's not in the sutta. That's in the Vinaya. So you can start. To, you can see that he's. These things are being tested out. They work on some individuals, they're problematic for others. By the way, so if you do body meditation and uh, you don't want to do the 32 parts because it icks you out, (laughs) or the nine stages of decomposition of a corpse, that's probably not that. There's hard to get a good corpse around these days in the West. It's hard to even see a, an autopsy, you know. But in uh, Asia, you can still do that and watch that. It's a it's pretty riveting experience. And it's not just looking at a corpse for 15 minutes, it's it's days and days and weeks of watching a, cor- a dead body decompose. And that's a very, uh, ex- that just, doesn't fly in the west at this time but the four elements is a good one for as, there seems to be again there's a lot of body dys what do you call it dysmorphia dys, dys dystopia <laughs> what is it we got a problem with our bodies here in the west somehow there's a real big problem and uh I won't get into the sociology of that, but of some countries, people don't have problems with their bodies. Other countries, there's a big problem. People have all kinds of mental illnesses around the, their relationship to their body. So, to perhaps for the West, uh, mindfulness of the breath and also four elements is probably a better way to approach the body because It's to turn the body into simply four elements, that is, it's water, it's air, it's earth, and it's, quote, fire. But the fire is just the heat, you know, that you have a, you got a 98 degrees, you got to keep your body at 98. There's this caloric production, which maintains the the heat that is digestion and so forth. So when you can, Divide the body, just in see it as it's just water. And of course, you know, I've got water, I'm you can see it, you you're taking water and putting it into the body, and then it's evaporating out, etc. Earth is just uh, food in the form of like cabbage, you know. Uh, put a seed in the earth. The earth turns into a cabbage. If you take the cabbage, you eat it. And then of course the it's just the the fuel of of food that is the heat element and then the air element is the most obvious of all it's this continuous breathing that we do that the air outside of us is suddenly when you inhale it becomes you like and then when you breathe out it's not you but it's it's even so none of it is you it's just this there's a, there's no barrier between you and the environment around you. There's continuous flow of water and air, heat, of course. And of course, we, you interchange with the environment if it's a little bit cool, your body, in terms of thermodynamics, heat always goes to the cold, the cold doesn't go to the heat, the heat goes to the cold. So your body heats the, the environment around you when it's when it's less temperature and when it's higher than body temperature it heats your body flowing back and forth as if your body is really just it's just a thick part of the environment is what it is it's just a, a, a lumpy part of the of the atmosphere but not particularly disgusting or horrifying or anything like that it's just these elements so that's a That can help. I think a lot of people who have body problems, you know, relationship to the body, would benefit by that practice of the four elements and just the the air element as well. The beautiful possibilities of simply breathing. If you can have a good time just breathing, you really you, I mean, you can retire. <laughs> you don't need much after that; just a, a bit of cabbage, you know. <laughs> um, so that is the first foundation of mindfulness, and that's the entrance to the monastery. Feeling is the next foundation of mindfulness: pleasant, painful, neutral—a bodily feeling and an clear distinction that there are emotional feelings that are also painful, neutral and pleasant. Now, there are whole schools, uh, I think, of Vipassana type schools, uh, Goenka type schools, where they're preoccupied with this idea of uh, exploring the body for sensations, you know, their their mind is roaming around in there. I don't find uh, that any specific instructions on that at all in the suttas. I think what is the Buddha is pointing out something rather obvious, that is that every single human alive knows what it is to have pain. You know, it starts early in life, doesn't it? (laughs) Like when you're born (laughs) and then all you gotta do is, you gotta staggering around as a baby and fall over and then you're wailing and then your mother picks you up and distracts you and then you're happy again, you're feeling pleasure and then there's nothing going on and it's neutral. That's nice actually, the neutral is nice after you've, after the pain, when the pain subsides. But then if you've just had some pleasurable, some candies or something like this and there's nothing to do, then the, the neutral feeling feels boring, turns into boredom. So neutral can be either pleasant or unpleasant but these are pretty obvious we don't really have to be searching around in the body this is kind of a preoccupation i think influenced by abhidhamma and this is the the analytical part of the pali canon where so it's very like science where the, the Every aspect of a human is, is broken down to its smallest parts. It's, I call it atomic Buddhism. It's kind of what we call reductionism as well. It's very, kind of a new type of thinking that develops over time. And if if monks are studying that a lot, they tend to start thinking in those terms. And uh, the, they start to get into this minute uh, to, dividing up the body into minute parts and trying to feel the subtle changes of feeling. And if you, if you arrive at that particular school, you may presume that that's what Buddhism is. But if you look at the suttas, it's usually on a different level. It's much less uh, precise, analytical, minute, atomic kind of stuff. Basically, we all know what pain and Pleasure and neutral is in emotions, and in. Uh, and we just have to get reconciled to, like, if our well being is dependent on not having pain in the body, then we have a very narrow and un, unsuitable philosophy of life. We have to have a philosophy that'll carry us through difficult times, unpleasant, painful bodily feelings. Sickness, and we have to also have a a, one that sees emotions, doesn't get lost or eternalize emotions. Sounds strange, but you can. It's very when you're happy and in a nice situation, it's very easy to forget that that it's it's very unstable. If if it's a worldly kind of happiness, it's easy to forget. And, of course, it can change in a blink of an eye. And then, it's a sort of sense of terrible shock about that. So that is an inadequate uh, philosophy for dealing with this, the reality of life. You have to have something that gives you support in the changing conditions of this, this pleasant emotions, uh, sometimes neutral emotions, sometimes unhappy situations. By the way, uh, again, this should not be thought of as that you don't try to produce certain emotions or attain and retain well-being and happiness, that you're somehow indifferent to the changing of your emotions, that sadness is just passing. Anger is just passing. Grief is just passing. Happiness is just passing. Joy is just passing. They're all just transient. As if you're kind of a third person observing it, almost like you're observing it in somebody else, which you can, I mean, that, that is, you, you can see, you can be detached and equanimous while somebody else is grieving, Or joyful etc you can be that way but you can't be that with yourself you're either grieving angry sad depressed or you're not you're not both this detached observer and angry greedy depressed happy joyful and detached at the same time you're not you're not two people so the this is the the clear instructions of the Buddha in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness. And you will see this in the fourth foundation, which is, uh, I'll get to, (laughs) maybe. Um, Well, let's go on to citta, the citta nupasana. I mean, feelings are just incredibly in our face. Uh, It's just profoundly and it's, it's central to the 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 nature of suffering is is in the form of feelings so feelings are um, essence of this truth of suffering how do you suffer you know you, you know what suffering is it's bad feelings and the buddha just explicitly says what kind of what of sufferings what am i talking about well pain illness aging loss so not just uh physical but emotional you know your your heart is in the midst of a changing uh, world and things that you love vanish on you and etc. So this is what is meant so suffering is an emotional experience that's what it is it's how do you feel but if you're just supposed to well it's all transient you're just supposed to watch it that doesn't end suffering, does it? So the, the third truth is that there's an end to this distress. The emotional ending comes while in this very life, while you have a body, the emotional distress ceases. I mean, this is ideally if, if one attains full awakening, then the emotional part is over. That is. The negative emotions are gone and you're in this field of positive emotions despite the nature of the body now the body doesn't you know arahants are not like beyond illness they have all of the illnesses that including the Buddha he has a a bad back he also ends the ending of his life he's got a terrible case of dysentery so He experiences illness and pain in the body but his emotional structure is not pulled into grief and sorrow by that, nor by anybody else's. So it's not that you're calloused or indifferent to other people's suffering, especially bodily suffering, you're well aware of it, it's a fact. Of having a body, but you realize that there's no value in you adding to the suffering in the world by grieving over the pain, you know, the inevitable pains that people have, the inevitable sicknesses that people have. If you're emotionally ill from that, then you just added to the suffering. It doesn't help anything. So, this is the, the nature of this is the nature of the relationship of the mind. The mind is going into a griefless, sorrowless, positive state. And it, it, by the way, so that it's not just sort of indifferent, apathetic kind of quality. It's clear that uh, in the seven factors that joy is a is a an emotional quality. That one, you know. Uh, It's an experience of samadhi, but it's also an experience of lightness, of being that one walks around with. You can feel joy all day long, and for no particular reason. Not because the weather's nice, or you just got a raise at work. It's in fact the result of the mind not being harassed. So we harass ourselves. We do this without understanding that we're doing it, how we're doing it. Why we're doing it, and we assume that there is no no alternative that you must harass yourself frequently during the day. The idea that if you just stop harassing yourself that the mind itself will return to us its essential nature and it does have a kind of a essential nature in the same way that water has an essential nature. you can add all kinds of things to it, but it it's it's h two o and if you if you don't add these things to it, uh, or if you allow them to settle, then it returns to this, this primary condition. And that's the mind. The Buddha says the mind is nothing personal about the mind. It's not your mind. It's, it's mind. This thing, you have no idea where it comes from. Your mind is so-called so your mind, but you have no idea where it came from. Or how it works, how does it work? It's astonishing, it does incredible things. But he says, here's the thing about this thing called the mind. It's nature when it's not molested, harassed, misused, is it returns to a, a luminous light, joyful ease, that's its nature. You don't have to add that. That's its, that's its fundamental nature. And so that's what these, the whole teaching on the next part, citta nupasana, mind, is asking yourself, am I harassing myself or not? Am I angry or not? Am I greedy or not? See, this anger and greed and agitation and uh, Confusion and all these things are self-harassments. And you have to start asking yourself, am I harassing myself or not? Am I, am I molesting myself or not? Am I abusing myself or not? And the self is the mind. Is the mind being mis- misused? Or not? And if not, then what, how is it when I'm not doing that? It's it's always the answer is you what you will discover is it it comes back this the sun comes out the the luminosity this what we, uh, Buddha has the term pabasara. it shines I mean this is just a simile so we too much uh, there is a kind of an internal sense of light but it's, it shouldn't get too much into the into the vision of light but uh, the lightness uh, the light of emotion. The, the heart is illuminated and feels light, and it doesn't need any kind of external uh, <clears throat> um, gifts or or any kind of thing from the world it's not particularly something some event it's that's its nature if we can learn not to do those things, which we learn very early in life i mean you start there's you're crying and greedy right from the get-go. You know, the, you just want that thing and you want to put it in your mouth and you, and that somebody else wants it and you try to get it away and then you lose it and you're just in tears. You're, you can't get what you want and then you get what you don't want and then occasionally you get what you want but then it's taken away, it's over. Big, just uh, standard normal human nature but the Buddha is saying, yeah, well, it's that's, that's not good enough. No way. You can't just stay with that. Yeah, it's natural, but it's not good enough. And you have the possibility as a human, probably not as an animal, but as a human, you can transcend this. You can examine the machine itself. It can look at itself and say, but what if I wasn't angry about that? What if I chose not to be that flips the entire world inside out that that puts you in in control of things rather than letting the 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 world you know pull your strings you have you take away the you cut the strings so that, that's the word detachment detachment means to cut the strings so there's no strings attached you you are not at the mercy of the circumstances around you. This is a weird thing to to go through because all of the stories of books and movies and aspirations in life and everything are always around finding the certain circumstances and that's what you're going to be happy with. That's why you're going to be happy. You're going to get this the right job, you're going to you're going to push through and get this situation and this 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 house or relationship, or move to this place where it's nice weather all the time, etc. So that's the whole, all the stories are like that. None of them are like, never mind any of that, just go inward (laughs) and find out that you have the capacity to be. Indefinitely in a sustained state of well-being, mental, emotional well-being. That is uh, that really is hard to get your mind around. So, be especially in, in at modern times and so forth. It uh, in a in a society that's soaked in uh, say Buddhist practice or contemplative practice. Some of the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, were like this as well. And that would have been a not so jarring a message, but uh, in modern times, it's just it's almost inconceivable. You see, you can see a little bit of that story, like, okay, big houses don't mean so much to me anymore. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm looking for a smaller house with a larger garden. Yeah, yeah. Don't want a McMansion, want a just nice, smaller place, nice backyard. Um, Maybe in the country. (laughs) So, because I don't need the status, I don't care about the status, and big houses take a lot of cleaning. Look at this place. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I like that, the audience reaction. Yes, yes. Amen, brother. Amen. (laughs) So, yeah, this this is... you, it really is a remarkable and radical idea. As you go along this path, you don't have to make a big deal about it. Don't upset the people around you about this. Don't put it in their face. that I am going to be in, utterly indifferent to the environment now. So, and this is the only way to happiness. You can tell you know, somebody at work, This is no, don't do that. Um, just quietly go about your business slowly increasing your sense of lightness well-being and detachment of course you still have to function we did we do have to clean this place (laughs) and there's no reason for that to interfere in any way with your well-being and happiness you have to you got jobs and stuff you have to deal with in relationships it's all right There's some sometimes unnecessary clutter and complexity that you could do something about. You could uh, simplify, turn down a few dinner invitations or whatever. Within whatever you can, especially in the lay life, even monastics have to do that too. There are places where there's a lot of activity at the monastery, there's a lot of ceremonies and chanting, and you might want to okay, I've got to look for a quieter place, quieter, you know, less, less interaction, that kind of stuff. So these can help. It's something you can do, but ultimately it's going to be an inward journey. The last factor is Dhamma Nupasana, which is very important. And so it goes five hindrances. So these are little drop down menus five hindrances, five khandas, you know, the five khandas. So body, consciousness, perception, volition, and feeling. This is the five khandas, basically. And then the six senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind and and their objects and then seven factors of enlightenment and the eightfold path and if you want to simplify that and just stay on two things which are really valuable and i think that an early version of this is just probably consists of two things the five hindrances seven factors of enlightenment does that ring a bell with right effort the first two right efforts To prevent and remove what? Five hindrances. And then the next one's to plant and nurture what? Seven factors. So it completely merges with the the right effort. So the last category of right mindfulness can just be those two two, uh, drop-down menus, five hindrances, seven factors of enlightenment. And that fulfills the, what you should be doing with right effort, incredibly valuable, just those two, that that, this is what you can see, the problem is, this is the harassments, the molestations, the self-inflicted pain and suffering, is just greed, anger, agitation, sloth, doubt, problematic doubt. And the, the beautiful is just investigation of truth, liberating truth, that's Dhamma-vichaya. For, these are the factors of awakening. Mindfulness, which is just a full capacity to attend to the right and appropriate things, which produces energy and joy. And that subsides into when properly established, subsides into serenity, leading deeper into true samadhi, leading profoundly into equanimity, this perfect balance. Two types, one is almost zero, like perfect stillness, and the other one is perfect balance in motion. So this, that's the seven, just a little handful, seven, Factors, which one is, this is the, the state of the uh, enlightened person's mind all the time. They remain in that spectrum. They don't fall into the five hindrances anymore. We can, uh, so that that's the, it's quite simple, quite just a two, two little sort of teachings that allow you to really uh, be lucid and understand what it is. Where are you going with this? And so, um, that is the four foundations of mindfulness. There's only 15 um, factors left, really. <laughs> but we won't get to them tonight, so we'll leave it that for now.